Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, Chronos Gaming Classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you can find and you can find me see and you can find me trying to see if I'm worthy over on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. We have another exciting XI4P premiere Friday where we're going to be talking about some incredibly worthy characters. And I couldn't think of anybody more worthy to open the show with me than the show's original co-host from 350 episodes ago. Hey Jonah. Hey Nico. It's me. You can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. That's P-E-A-K. It has been such an incredible ride over 350 episodes of this amazing show. We've talked about so many comics and we've added so many people over the years. I know it started with Ekman, but we've been branching out into all corners of the Marvel Universe. And one of the things I have most enjoyed covering with you here on X's for Podcast is Jane Foster's turn as Valkyrie. Yes. I often talk about it whenever we're covering any Jane title that one of the things Nico told me about when we first started dating and first started introducing me to comics and stuff was how much he loved Jane. And I always knew about Jane Thor, but I really appreciate and am excited to get to know more about Jane Foster as Valkyrie, because I think it's such an interesting direction to take the character from her previous history as Thor. And one of the things that people may not readily realize about the narrative of Jane Foster as Thor is that Jane Foster herself had an incredibly limited number of appearances prior to picking up the hammer. She had truly less than 100 appearances prior to that, sometimes not appearing for six, seven, and eight years at a time. And the reason this is possible is because Thor as a major male figure is very rarely defined in any way by his relationships. However, as so many female characters and side characters were over the years, Jane Foster was frequently defined by her relationships and could only really appear when there was a Thor-based reason. Thor was often off-world doing Asgard stuff, and when he was in Asgard and the Avengers, they would just say, oh, this comes after that. There would be years at a clip where there really just wasn't room for Jane. Ultimately, the narrative that puts Jane into the focus point is through Jason Aaron's Thor. This kicks off with Thor, God of Thunder, which is 1 through 24. We get to Original Sin, then there's the 10th realm one through five then it's thor god of thunder 25 and ultimately there's really next to no jane in that there's the introduction that jane foster is suffering from cancer but it isn't until thor in 2014 which ran eight spectacular issues with an annual that then rolled over into the pages of secret wars thors one through four where we really got a sense of who jane foster is she would go on to star in the mighty thor for 21 issues which would then be renumbered at 700 and run through 706. There would also be key moments in this series alongside titles like The Unworthy Thor, focusing on Odin's son for five issues, and Marvel Generations Thor, seeing Jane partner up with the classic Thor himself. Ultimately, Thor would be rebooted in 2018, back under the focus of our classic male archetypal Thor, which would run some 16 issues alongside King Thor 1 through 5 and the War of the Realms complex. And after that, 
that, we found Jane off in her own world. And that's what this Who is Jane Foster is really addressing. And I was so excited to talk about this with you, Jonah. And I was really eager to see how much of Jane's history, Torin Grunbeck, Leonard Kirk, Matt Miela, and VCs Joe Sabino would be diving into. And I have to be honest, while I loved this issue, I was shocked that like 40 years of Jane were summarized in one big panel of Thor. I fully understand, especially with this style of comic, and I've actually read a couple of the Who is Infinity comics, which they're really easy reads. I think they're pretty great if you're new to a character or you're kind of unsure of like where a character maybe got their original start, so on. I highly recommend reading any of them for any of the characters. But the one for Jane Foster, this is a character that's been around for many decades at this point. This really gives, I think, the briefest brushing of her history. You know, talks about her mother, goes to her becoming a doctor, finding out that Donald Blake was Thor, and those many adventures, her getting cancer, her becoming worthy, and feeling that pull of Mjolnir and calling Mjolnir, becoming Jane Thor, feels like maybe there could have been like another moment or two talked about that's like really integral to her story, because it feels like they boiled it down to the very bare amount of like, this is who Jane Thor is. And I wonder how much that has to do with all of the Jane before 2014 is vaguely defined by Thor, as we said in the beginning. It really wasn't until 2014 that there was a wealth of agency to dig into. A lot of her narrative is beautifully crafted flashback moments that Jason Aaron, you know, painstakingly slipped in where he could so that it didn't become an exposition situation. But there is something really fascinating about Marvel not really being interested in dealing a whole lot with the pre-Thor Jane era. Now, it's important to note that this book is specifically called Who is Jane Foster Thor? It's not Who is Jane Foster before Thor. And I do think it's important that the moments that they show before and sort of around the Thordom is so specifically powerful moments of agency for a non-male lead in a comic. That's a rare thing in the era that Jane is from. So I was really excited to see that she has a moment with her mother, her mother showing strength, but Jane showing wisdom despite her mother showing strength. So this is two women across generations showing love and strength and familial bond. What a great way to start a comic about a powerful woman hero. Next thing we see is she is a competent doctor. She's kicking ass. And I would point out she is as large as the Thor that follows. And then of course we get the beautiful tragically sick Jane sitting against what is some of the most stark colors. The colors on this book are so amazing. I very much agree with the colors. I love when comics are colored in this way. I always love lettering and any Asgardian book because I love the kind of like the signature ye old style that they give it. And that's not here. Um, actually, no, it is here because there is a little bit of dialogue and it is there. I take that back. I get, We get to see it and I like it. One of the things that I think makes Jane such a spectacular character that really elevates her is it's so much more than just she believes there must always be a Thor because she understands the need for people to believe in heroes and protect people. And one of the things Thor does is Thor puts the power in people's hands. He enables people to become their own builders and he tries to set up communities. And that's something Jane as a doctor can understand, helping people to help and heal themselves when they need it, stepping in and providing medicine. But we really see this idea of Jane saying there must always be a Thor contrasted with the idea that being Thor is literally killing her. The tragedy of the hammer reversing 
nursing her chemo is so significant, yet it's not just the battle that she faces against herself that kills her, but rather it's a battle with a foe even Thor couldn't best. The idea that Jane is shown here as a powerfully tragic character is so necessary, I believe, to endearing her to an audience that doesn't have a whole lot to kind of latch on to necessarily from the films, if that's where they're coming from. With the success of the MCU properties, a lot of characters are getting updates in a way in terms of their comic forms to help bridge that gap of consumers to get more people who are into the MCU stuff to try to get into comics and so there's been a lot of streamlining of stories and a little bit of not saying this happens with jane but retconning and changing to make things a lot more accessible to the average consumer who has never read comics before it can be very difficult to create a sense of connectivity between the two visually disparate worlds this is not natalie portman this is a bit more consistent to comics jane and she's going to look different. So I think when you're trying to make that connection and she's not just going to look different because she's the comic iteration, but Valkyrie, her current characterization is not Thor. She has a unique weapon which can transform into whatever she needs it to be. It's named Undrarn and we are given this sense of the new woman that Jane Foster has become as Valkyrie outside of Thor. One of the reasons I think that might be a challenge for Marvel to simultaneously master is when it's a character like Captain America, it's a little bit more, oh, it's Captain America. I feel as though a female Thor who is now bearing a different name can be a pretty hard sell. One of the things that this book did beautifully was by focusing so much on the ways in which the character of Jane is the through line, no matter what she looks like, and creating a sympathetic hero who is willing to make sacrifices for the greater good in and out of the costume, we get a strong sense of the woman that Marvel wants us to see. And I think in no small part, that's put to the artistic team and the writing team for crafting a narrative that was focused on Jane as the star of this story, not Jane as a passenger, as she so often was. It's funny you bring that up about Jane's kind of passivity in comics, because something I wanted to do was I went on the Marvel Wiki and I was like, let's read this backstory. It felt like for a a very long time, Jane Foster kind of had like Mary Jane Watson syndrome, where she kind of was just the Mary Jane Watson equivalent for Thor, in that she was often a little more of a plot device to have Thor's character arc go through things, as opposed to being a more fully realized character in the sense of she has her own agency and she started off kind of just being a love interest for Donald Blake slash Thor. But now my character has had so much time in history, you can tell when writers and companies are like, we can do better. We can really make this character something. And I think that's why Jane Foster picking up the mantle and becoming Thor was such an amazing move for her. And I know that it's a kind of a hard sell to tell anybody this is the new character. And you know, mantles can be kind of tricky. Some people will be happy to read about who's taking up the name. And there are going to be people who are a little more traditionalist and like, well, they're not this person, only blank can be blank. I think that Jane Foster becoming Thor was a really great turning point in Marvel Comics because it's them saying, no matter what the past, somebody else can be the hero. And I think Jane Foster 
becoming Thor and eventually becoming Valkyrie was an amazing move and amazing strides of showing off this powerful superheroine. I know I can't wait to see more of what Torin Grunbeck is bringing with Jane Foster over in the pages of the current Jane Foster and the Mighty Thor miniseries, which is legacy numbers 20 through 24 for Jane Foster's Valkyrie series. And as the writer of this, you know, it's really great to see that sort of focused continuity on not just the same writer's voice helping to develop a character who needs maybe a little bit more consistent development to make sure they take stronghold, but also to make sure that it's not a male writer writing a non-male character every time. It's so important to see that sort of diversity of character and creator on these titles, and it certainly helps make Jane feel so much more real to me as a reader. In the Infinity comic, when Jane has Mjolnir for the first time, it is a beautiful piece of art that I won't print it. I agree. They just released an amazing The Saga of Jane Foster Valkyrie trade, which contains a significant amount of Jane's story from sort of the second half of her time as Thor and then her initial time as Valkyrie. And with that coming out, I'm hoping that the several miniseries that have been released since will get bundled together at roughly the same size trade and something like this would fit in there beautifully. This would be printed really loving and it would be great if it was possible to have all of this beautiful Leonard Kirk and Matt Mila art in physical copy. I've been a huge fan of Leonard Kirk since back on Captain Britain and MI-13. So this was just a familiar pencil coming in and delivering a great job on a character that I really love. Couldn't agree more. Coming up for you guys, we have some amazing coverage of a title that's pretty connected to this one. We're continuing our look at Jason Aaron's Avengers. After that, we're going going to be running some of our continuing, funny enough, Torn Grunbeck and Jason Aaron-centric coverage with Punisher War Journal Blitz, or as I insist on calling it, Pun Blitz, which is, in this case, another title started by Jason Aaron, where Torn Grunbeck picks up the reins, and we hope you guys enjoy. But first up, Volume 3 of Avengers by Jason Aaron. Don't forget, if you guys like what you hear, you can always check us out over on xisforpodcast.com and at xisforpodcast on Twitter. Jonah, I want to thank you so much for coming out with me and helping us kick this episode off right. Of course. Anytime we get a chance to talk about Jane Foster is a good time in my eyes. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvel's chrono-skimming classics and journeying to the beginning of time to figure out how Iron Fist went from an insult to an immortal weapon. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNate, X-Gray-X. And it's Nathan. You can find me online at Dazzler AOA at Twitter. That's right, Dazzler, like in the Age of Apocalypse, where you will be hearing me talk about the best of all boys, Thorey. Yeah, pretty hands down. Thori is like Candide dog. He is the best of all possible worlds. And the king of all dogs. Yeah. yeah. Glitter and Be Gay starts playing quietly in the background. It's just me and Chenny screaming the high notes and Thori howling along with us. But then you do auto-tune on Thori. <laughs> <laughs> it's all very T-Pain, where the T stands for Thori. There you go. So I think that means we are here to discuss Avengers Volume 3. And this book is a motherfucker of a, a ride. War War of the Vampires constitutes Avengers 13 through 17. Andrea Sorrentino is the artist on issue 13, which is a standalone with colors by Justin Posner and Eric Arseniega. Before we move over to a pretty solid continuous arc that feels unfortunately a little too close to the Avengers of the 
the Deep arc in 14 through 17 with brilliant pencils top to bottom by David Marquez with colors once again by Eric Arseniega with Justin Posner. We have Letters Across the Board by VC's Corey Pettit and we have covers from varying brilliant artists from Steve Epting to David Marquez and Matthew Wilson and all right first things first who's a vampire person who's like all about that gothy life oh my god me 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 I did not used to be I am now it's a gay thing yeah I mean I'm a vampire person in the broader world I've liked a lot of vampire stories I really do not like Marvel vampires I find a little bit of fun and camp in the old X-Men vampire stuff especially with Storm always very fun but then from there like going up to Curse of the Mutants which really drove me insane Jubilee stuff really drove me nuts I really have not liked Marvel vampires and this arc I loved and had a lot of fun with and it also as I started to get into it and clue into it it really led me into thinking about the purpose of this Avengers run which we have talked about so much and its ability to highlight facets and corners of the Marvel Universe for people new fans and old and give you if not the best possible take probably the funnest possible take and let you decide like could this be something I'm into I'm into the Marvel vampires now I hated them before but even though this is not the like greatest most well-written arc I had a ton of fun with it and I now would read something else about the Marvel vampires and it made me more excited for blade stuff both in the MCU and that we know is coming up in Marvel comics unabashedly love vampires yes there's camp there's a lot of stuff that they usually keep going back to the same formula with the Marvel vampires me and Steve talked about it on a whole segment like just vampires throughout like the Marvel universe and the arcs that they have going on revisiting this start of the Chernobyl vampire empire has been really good and really fun to just take a look at it in the second way I love Dracula in this story yes he's not the sexy Dracula we all want him to be but his appearance makes sense to his standing in his life at this moment love everything and he's definitely someone's type oh yeah yeah you know I think Anna Nicole Smith would fall in love oh Oh, that empire would be unstoppable Anna Nicole Smith married Dracula (laughs) that would be the keeping up of the Kardashians of the Marvel Universe I don't think there's any other way to look at this good god good god Wow. I genuinely really am in the same boat as both of you. I think that Marvel vampires are always kind of crummy. They're always kind of like just... That's such a good word for it. Yeah. They're just crummy. Because vampires we all know are cool and like Marvel, a lot of we got a lot of great characters and superheroes in this. It's really weird that they've never really done solid vampire stuff over a long period of time. Like some people get good blade runs or like issues, but like crummy, great word to describe Marvel vampires overall. The best arc besides the really, really great Storm annual and issue has to have been the arc where Doctor Strange had all the vampires killed, which says a lot because you're like, oh, thank God they're all gone. (laughs) The purge. (laughs) Marvel Universe is so ripe with horror and fear and dramatics. It's just so weird that I feel like they've really never done them the justice that they could have. A few stories do come to mind that I enjoy. I do love 
love the storm stuff. And I'm a fan of the Captain Britain and MI-13. MI-13. I said that like a question. MI-13? I really like the Captain Britain and MI-13. Now I can't hear no, that. No, just <laughs> vampire stuff but at the end of the day the most unfucking believable thing is every time i read anything jason aaron writes of blade i fall so fucking in love with this character jason aaron's blade is one of the most underrated celebratable iterations of a character i have come across in a long time i am so stoked for everything going on with this character i have a blade minifig from my daily bugle set and i just I have them a little <laughs> higher, a little more proudly these days. His blade is on the same level as his Robbie Reyes. Totally. Whereas I didn't know much about Robbie Reyes. I've, I've seen stuff with Blade in it. With, I never really knew as much about him as maybe I should have, but his characterization of Blade is so on point with everything I know, but it also brings so much more depth than I thought he had in the past. It's so good. Oh my God. In preparing for this, I tried to go back and read a little bit of old Blade stuff and found myself pretty unengaged for a reason that then this book really rectified, which is I don't really feel like I got, have ever gotten an understanding of what Blade's like voice is, like what it would be like to have a conversation with him. A lot of these characters have really established distinct voices. I mean, you know, Tony Stark, Cap, Captain Marvel, um, they all have a pretty consistent voice over time. And Blade just never really felt like one of those characters to me like he could be written really overwrought he could sometimes be more of kind of a black exploitation character it just kind of depended on who got their hands on him and it was never consistent and it was never really anything you could sink your teeth into and right off the bat <laughs> vampires i'm just gonna stumble into puns for the rest of this episode there's a lot at stake here give me a second he's got a really solid idea of what he wants his blade to sound like it's consistent it's relatable and the biggest thing for me is I had already read the free comic book day introduction to his daughter Briella which I think I mean like I read that and then immediately talked to you Nico who were very excited about it I was excited just because I kind of like new stuff and when people do new things but I didn't really care until I read this and went back and read that and thought there is a lot of potential for both of these characters one who's kind of old and worn but might be getting a second life with some good writing on him and a new one that can kind of pull concepts that seem cool but never got the right kind of use from the original Blade and maybe bring them to a new generation that would be interested in the overall Blade corner but with some new <laughs> blood in it. <laughs> oh, man. Whoa. These really aren't going to stop. Some of these jokes shouldn't see the light of the day. Yeah, Boom. this is a real slice <laughs> of humor we're bringing here because he's got swords. But before we can get to Blade, we have a slightly different kind of powerful weapon on our horizon. And I am such a big fan of Iron Fist stories that explore to me why the Iron Fist creates for me an argument for an anthology of Avatar books. I want to see every immortal weapon. I want to see them all do amazing things. I want to see every version of them through time. And I kind of get that with this book. This issue in particular reminds me a lot of what I love about the classic Fraction and Aja and Brubaker one-offs about the Iron Fist. And to be really honest, I wish there was a slightly more clear way to say Kunlun is a city of Asian descent, so it didn't still feel sort of like Elena of Avalor. Oh, look, it's just kind of like magic 
magical Spanish. You know, it's kind of like, oh, look, but Asian. I wish it was a little bit clearer so that it felt like a stronger connection to the elements of real world culture we are based on. But man, I love this issue. Gotta confess, Iron Fist never really appealed much to me until I've been reading what Alyssa Long and what they've been putting out with the new Iron Fist. Like they really, really, really have rocked the fuck out of that mythos and made it something that's interesting to me. So having read that and what they've done with that character, like going back and reading this issue has really kind of opened my eyes to how good Jason Aaron's 1 million BC Iron Fist is because it takes out that whole Danny Rand element, which always made Iron Fist such a hard to love character because it was so much cringy stuff with Danny Rand being the, uh, like the mystical protector of Kunlun. So like, it's really cool to see this and I've got a much better appreciation about Iron Fist because of Alyssa Wong and their amazing work. But going back and rereading this, I really see what Jason Aaron, he's trying to do that. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat as you, Nathan. Really was not a big Iron Fist person until we found out that we were getting the Alyssa Wong story and then found out that it was going to be based on the work that was done in Death of Doctor Strange, White Fox. And, you know, then it gets really exciting. I think the 1 million BC Avengers, it adds this layer of like, okay, we are attacking this corner of the Marvel Universe from both ends. We're going to show you how things are changing in the present and how things are very different in the past. So it really expands for people that are interested in the idea of the Iron Fist that you don't really just have to concern yourself with the background stories of Danny Rand. I, I think we're kind of getting a pass to, you know, acknowledge that that happened, that there might be some stuff that comes up, but we can get excited about other Iron Fist stuff now and have some really quality content that isn't frustratingly Orientalist and centering on white characters. I have similar questions about Kun Lun. You know, I could see this going in a direction of the city influence the culture, which might be a weird one without the right writer working on it. I could also see kind of the the mystical city is as the people that encounter it see it. So it might look different to others, but because it is so focused where it is, that's how it's sort of gotten this look. I think there's a lot of cool things that are left unmined all over Iron Fist. And again, for me, all of this Avengers run is just really speaking to taking stock of all the cool stuff that is available to play with in the Marvel Universe and doing exactly that, playing around with it and seeing, you know, what you can provide to readers that's going to get them excited about different possible books, other projects. This is both a really good primer and a really good first adventure for so many corners of Marvel. And I just I have fun every time to see how Mephisto has been one of the driving characters throughout all of this Avengers run so far and, and knowing what comes in the future like I didn't remember the prominence of Mephisto so much in this book at first but going back especially after Heroes Reborn knowing what happens through there I'm like wow Mephisto has had his hands in everything see it's interesting for me because I have skipped around I've read a few arcs from this run overall but Heroes Reborn is not one of them. I am into this knowing a bunch of stuff, not knowing a lot of stuff. And it's A, very cool how you can have read significantly further into the run, a run like uh, World War She-Hulks, and still have no idea details like about Mephisto that have come up between this arc and that one. The last thing I really thought about and encountered with Mephisto was One More Day, and he's just oh, not no. a character that I like. I believe in the possibility of a great writer for Mephisto, it's just not one that I've been into. 
So seeing him pop up right now, I'm just kind of like, oh, this isn't who I want. But A, you know, knowing from other people that there's more stuff coming and B, really having been lulled into a sense of trust with Aaron that for stuff I don't want, I don't want vampires. I'm not interested in a war with vampires. Oh, now I'm into vampires. I feel like by the end of this, I'm going to be doing a lot of Mephisto memes and like how I'm Mephisto's <laughs> good boy. Like I'm, I'm fully released to the fact that I'm going to be into him very soon. There is something so fucking weird about the amount of mystical animals in this book in a way that I really like because you know we've got magical dragon sure we've got crazy snake and I have to be honest that one of my favorite things is the way that the iron fist who by the way making it a woman way to make me engaged way to subvert my expectation way to excite me really big fan from there that she uses blizzard to end all blizzards is so cool but guys gorilla with a power stone (laughs) fuck it's a gorilla with a power stone this is everything to me. Is that an infinity stone? Like, yeah, I think so. I'm like, like that's so crazy. I love, it. I love it. Who, who would have thought I needed a gorilla with an infinity stone? I want to see what this gorilla would do if he got the whole gun. I also really love the idea that this Iron Fist was a Prometheus of Kunlun who took their secrets to the human population, and you know, was not an Iron Fist, like was just a member of the society that brought knowledge to others and for that kind of nurturing and caring instinct the punishment led to becoming the Iron Fist. It is a real, it's a start that rewrites the Iron Fist mythos in a way that again it just makes me more eager to engage. Agreed. I do love the fact that Kunlun is such a developed human society versus where a lot of the other 1 million BC Avengers that we've seen as humans at first came from very primitive societies so it was. it's very nice to have have such an ancient Asian society be one of the leaders in human technology. And I would just like to go out of my way to say that there is a really consistent amount of continuity here. Kun Lun's leaders always suck. And I would just like to thank Jason Aaron for continuing that it's actually just always been that they suck. Because the thing that makes this story so insane is I don't think we get a really definitive answer on whether or not or how exactly our Iron Fist is able to defeat the, let's go with Power Gorilla. And I think when we see the, who must be the Thunderer, re-invite Iron Fist, Fei Fang, back to Kunlun, she knows better. She knows that they looked at her as an outcast, as a disgusting creature, and now they want her back because she's a weapon. And she knows better than to ever fucking trust Kunlun. It's unfortunate, but it's one of those like powerful regencies that when it isn't about frequently women fixing the dictatorship that has arisen it's a really unfair caste system and it's interesting to see that it started all that long ago. And it's interesting to think about how things change clearly because after there's going to be more Iron Fist and they're going to originate from Kunlun. So we know there's this story continues of this push and pull between the Iron Fist and the ancient city. 
I love too how part of her journey was just how magical it was that one of the men she was teaching just brought her flowers every day and that kind of wore at her heart. Yeah. I know. Ugh. You know, it's so interesting to see the people that she teaches, the way that she chooses to interact with the world at hand. They are literally, to her, perhaps less evolved creatures, but she still sees the value in interacting with them as opposed to Kunlun, where she's from, which chooses to stay out of other people's affairs. I'm not saying that magical cities should go around and involve themselves in everyone's affairs, but it is interesting because it comes across as though Kunlun sees others as beneath them, and this Iron Fist does not, and I love that. It's almost like a huge morality tale like any episode in Star Trek with the Prime Direct, right? There's always reason to break the Prime Directive, but, you know, then you've got Starfleet seeming uncaring a lot of the time when they're like, no, we don't get involved with lesser civilizations. But you do! (laughs) And it really is the Prometheus metaphor. I see a really important part of large Marvel deity concepts and extra-dimensional concepts being there is an unchangingness to Asgard, to Kunlun, to these societies that have reached a pinnacle and don't really want to go any further or engage with the world at large and people from those societies people who become heroes seeing earth or you know some mortal less evolved dimension and saying these people are still participating they're still changing they need guidance and assistance and I want to be somebody that can provide that for them and I'm pulled by my society that says to stay away and just to let them do their thing and don't participate and it's interesting to watch because of course we root for the humans because we are humans but there is some conflict on the other side of like maybe it actually is not a good idea to help them and maybe this is going to shoot you in the foot. Absolutely agreed. Give me more Mephisto snake. I need more Mephisto snake. And I love that point because the Mephisto snake is one of the best deceptions in the entire arc. Okay we've talked a lot about how there's really no need for Johnny Blaze in anything (laughs) anywhere. (laughs) Including Including his own Ghost Rider book. <laughs> yes, we talk about this a lot on this show. He's just not for us. But the fact that they made me think, who's read this before and forgot where he comes into the narrative, they made me think that Robbie might be talking to Mephisto Snake. Like, that Jason Aaron has created this villain that you never know when the representation of evil might creep in. You know, I'm wondering, is he behind Dracula as I'm reading this or is he behind the legion as i'm reading this or is he behind russia as i'm reading this like you never know where mephisto will strike in jason aaron's avengers Ooh, that is a good point the whole 1 million bc avengers seems like mephisto is like the loki of it all and it's really funny because i think about just my general feelings that this is a really solid entry point for mcu people and that this is introducing and playing around with a lot of stuff that i think will be important for the MCU going forward, characters like Blade. And I just think about how obsessed everybody was with the idea that Mephisto was behind everything in WandaVision and like just the, that is definitely the case theories that were constantly coming up. And then it's like, there's no backdoor possibility that Mephisto was involved at all. And now we're getting this arc that is kind of doing a lot of that same stuff that everybody thought, like just sneaking him in at all these little points, like everything he's got his fingers in, you have no idea where he's going to show up. And it might all tie with this big bow 
of him being like, it was me all along. I just, I think that's really funny. <laughs> that was the wildest time ever on Twitter. <laughs> like, Oh my God. Every single character was Mephisto. It didn't even matter. It like at a certain point, people were like, am I Mephisto? By using him as this background thing, it allows us to switch focus to these main characters. Because again, my main complaint about this series that I am enamored of is there's just too many fucking teams and every team has five or six people and everybody's just so antagonistic of the Avengers which good but it's unfortunate that it gets hard to keep track of them when what I really want is more pages of this fucking blade I'm kind of giving myself over to it if I were sitting at the top of editorial and receiving these pitches and scripts I might say like maybe too many teams dial it back or spread them out I don't know but as a reader I have just sort of given myself over to the current and yeah it is confusing and if like I met Jason Aaron one day and he was like you didn't fall in love with every member of the vampire villain team I would say you know I was kind of busy trying to remember who was in the winter guard you know who's coming but I'm having a lot of fun I have little snapshots of people I feel like the the ones that are really the best that other writers love and pull in later I'll at the very least remember that I'll have a little snapshot in my mind of the time I read whatever arc they appeared in and I'll be like I did like that guy these are jam-packed is it bad that my favorite of these little characters is boy thing like I just, no, I just love nope, boy my thing favorite so much. I mean agreed so agreed I just why why can't we change their names <laughs> I, it, it, so many people get bigger rebrands than this from more recognizable previous branding. The thing about this Blade Vampire battle is it's such a great way to bring this guy in. You know, we get this Shadow Colonel and his Legion of the Unliving, who, not to sell any of them short, but, you know, I'm kind of living for Sarge. <laughs> I love him so much. And then we get Blade, and Blade's just a real motherfucker. It's a really interesting way to bring in an Avengers issue with, you know, no Avengers. I think it was important to intro the character as a main character in that way. Like, it, it really made me, like, have some really strong feelings for Blade. Like, I don't know if I'm in love with Blade yet, but I have some really strong feelings for Blade after this. Yeah, I mean, I... I was ready to follow him very early on in this issue, coming from a place of just not really being that interested in the fact that he was there. So it's a pretty solid turnaround in very few pages, and that to me is pretty impressive. The thing that we get that I think most thrilled me in this issue was the interplay between T'Challa and Tony, both gods of men, just in very different ways. T'Challa manages to be a god of man who exists in magic and technology by always focusing on the humanity and everything, whereas Tony's able to do it by divorcing himself from reality and the repercussions of his actions. Without both of them, the Avengers could not manage to continue saving the world. Yet, seeing their thoughts so eloquently explored really helped me as a reader to understand why there are so many mega brains on one Avengers team. We need the balance. And I think it was really great to see a moment where it's not Cap, Tony, Thor, the three white guys that we've seen forever being cast 
cast into these very important leader roles. We're seeing more and more as the agents of Wakanda are mentioned, and we see how on top of global and really galactic politics, Black Panther is, that despite, you know, not being an original Avenger, like we always think of him first type of person, he is a leader amongst these people. And at times it is him and Tony, like those are the two people that are making the decisions and that have the power. It's great to see that in terms of representation. It's also nice to see a character like Steve, who for me sometimes does not feel like he's a great symbolic leader, but I don't know that he's the best brain leader. And so seeing him just be a stalwart, punchy guy who's never going to give up while somebody else takes more of a leadership role, somebody who I'm much more convinced can do it. I am very positive about that. Yeah, that's it's always been the thing about Steve Rogers, hasn't it? Like, he's always been a great tactician, a great field leader, but like, unlike where Cyclops can bridge over from that and Cyclops and Storm and they can become like great inspirational leaders and great like movement leaders, like Steve Rogers just never ascended to that level for me. So to see T'Challa take over and be that, it's, it's amazing. I totally get why too, because like as somebody who is so Cap-centric, I have like four different Caps I cosplay. Like, I love Cap. I think it's because Cap stands for something else. He stands for America, whereas Storm stands for the independence of women of color, of oppressed minorities like mutants, of women who have been told what to do with their bodies, of people who look different, of people cast into secondary roles. Like, Storm decided what Storm stands for. Captain America plays a role, and depending on what elevates your spirit, on what brings you to that next place, it's two very different things for two conceptually similar roles. And maybe it's the whole Steve standing for, like, Steve Rogers standing for America thing. Like, maybe it's just, as I get older, I I can no longer see America as as I did when I was a kid. I can't get behind that as a thing, but I can get behind what Storm stands for. I can get behind what Cyclops stands for when he's a revolutionary leader, like, you know, trying to free and oppress people. So, like, that's probably a good point. And, you know, the reflection of America's maybe better off role as not considering itself the world leader and stepping back and taking more of a supportive role, especially in the face of fictionally organizations that are just better equipped, you know, Wakanda unequivocally has better technology and better resources to be the world watchdog and to decide how we're going to tackle issues. Fictional America, absolutely. Marvel Universe America really can't compare. And I think the reflection of we've reached a place where America has to kind of step aside and not see itself as the definitive world leader. I like seeing that reflection here. It's almost a comfort. Agreed. To mention a little bit what the plot is here throughout War of the Vampires, the central conflict seems to be that the Legion of the Unliving are after Dracula, who has turned himself into the Russians. The Avengers get into the Russian compound with the help of Tony Stark, who finds out that Dracula's like, nah, son, I'm beat. And Tony's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure you're lying. And Dracula's like, no, no, let me mention your father and stage a prison riot. See how defeated I am? And Tony's like, this is the Dracula son of a bitch I know. From there, it's sort of an increasing series of big dickery from several teams. And that's, again, the one place I maybe find myself a little frustrated. You know, I like that you mentioned that Captain America standing for or against something kind of has an effect on you. I really didn't need Cap using a cross as a sword. No. That was really silly. It really didn't work for me. And, you know, that we just as quickly 
quickly get Mephisto as the devil as a little boy trying to poison Robbie on the next page, you're using very specific Christian iconography to create a visual. While I have no problem with, we'll say, amusing sacrilege, you know, I don't know that it's creating an effect by putting it in Captain America's hand that you're hoping for. Especially when it comes with the narration. It's not that Steve Rogers doesn't care for church. Some men are just too busy standing to ever stop and kneel. It's like there was a feeling that this image was necessary, but also that it wasn't a good idea. (laughs) So we got to have it on there, but we got to have a thing where it's like, we're not saying that Captain America is also Captain Christian. We're just saying that in this moment, he really did need this cross. I'd prefer to hope for the best and not think that Jason Aaron meant any other things behind that the stop and kneel thing, because, you know, there were other things going on, other protests going on with a lot of kneeling at the time that were very controversial to some people. And I, I don't think Captain America would be against somebody taking a protest or at least I hope he wouldn't be so I agree it would be a complete misinterpretation of Captain America on every fundamental level I think you know we've talked a lot about social justice causes more and more increasingly on this show like by the week and (laughs) fucking good and one of the things we've talked about is the decopification of our comic books yet when the writer shows an understanding of the way to make that amusing it definitely tells me that the book is heading in the right direction the do you want to play good cap bad cap routine joke (laughs) lands on every level because we're also talking about like a truly evil person so i'm gonna also go with you benefit of the doubt it did maybe you know whenever i hear neil and america in the same sentence i can't help but go to one place neil armstrong astronaut for the united states but if i go a second place (laughs) it's the incredible debate about something that should stand no debate and no one should come anywhere near it if someone needs to kneel you let them kneel and that is the end of the statement for whatever reason they need to kneel and with lines like good cap bad cap clearly poking fun at the institutional act of interrogation by a super cop i would like to also be with you and agree that hopefully that is not what was happening here good cap bad cap thing is probably the the only character i would say that i don't love aaron's characterization of her and it sort of flies in the face of what kelly thompson's been doing in in her solo series is, is Carol Danvers, Captain Marvel. I, it, Jason Aaron obviously plays her as the ultimate cop. So I, I that ultimate cop, ultimate space cop, Carol Danvers that Jason Aaron pushes is probably my least favorite characterization of anything, but at least he's having fun with it and poking fun too. I don't feel like getting into Carol, skip me. Then we get the interrogation, which I've gone on the record as saying one of the things I love the most in comics is when an artist really understands how to fucking destroy a black coptic marker on a single page. It speaks to my soul. This is the darkest page I have ever seen in Avengers comic. This page is all shadows and I love it. It's like all shadows and a nightlight. And this interrogation, which you quickly realize is going way too well. It has to be a setup. You know, Sarge gets a hold of Robbie Reyes's mind and quickly Blade finds himself on the losing side of things. And this is where Dracula falls into the hands of the Russians. If I had one complaint about the narrative at this point it kind of feels like it could have been structured in a way that was one issue less i feel like there's a lot of subterfuge leading me in circles but i love a fucking brawl in the avenger celestial and then figuring out if you've got to fight in the nuts or not this is this is my kind of avengers fuck it up in the celestial guys let's go the visual of the avengers headquarters being you know like the dead celestial just reaching out in the snow has really grown on me <laughs> like at first it used to bother me but it's a really fun 
unbombastic yet creepy idea for them to use the dead celestial as a headquarters. Yeah. One thing that I've been like always a little bit on edge about since the mutants moved to Krakoa is that as an environment, it just might seem too alien for the Marvel universe overall. Like they're always now a little bit too weird and that will keep people from embracing them. And like maybe just like for creative purposes, it's just very weird compared to how normal the Avengers are. But things like intestinal shutdown, like the fact that they're referring to the Celestial's body parts as like wings of their base has the same flavor of weirdness that I'm just like, this is the era when everything was weird and gross and like the Celestial snot created us all. That's awesome to me. Like let us get as like gross and like visceral about the entire universe. It does not just need to be the mutants. Everything can be weird. Steve fighting in a Celestial's guts is just absurd to me and it makes everything possible. And that's how I feel about so many of the ideas here. I question how Sarge is able to so quickly take over my precious Robbie. But one of the things, because I'm with you, I don't need Space Cop Carol anymore, but Carol and her love for Robbie is something that is so pervasive through this book. And I truly believe she let him blast her back because she would never hurt this boy. And like that moment really hits me right in the feel. But there's so much going on here where I'm like, obviously Dracula's running the show. Obviously Ghost Rider's gonna fight the control. And you know what? I kind of want to be like, I'm not new, guys. But you know what? Fuck, someone is. Mm -hmm. Someone's new. And not only is someone new, they're new through Avengers because this is the book that stood out to them. And I feel like, you know, when we hit those moments in storytelling, it's okay because it is someone's first book. But God, when Robbie won't hurt those kids, that's my boy. How do you guys feel about the nature of this arc, this continuous fight that runs across multiple issues without tremendously pushing the story forward? We're still in setup mode. Like, and that's amazing to see. We're still setting up a story that the Chernobyl stuff doesn't even get somewhat resolved until World War She-Hulk, right? He is very, very much playing a really, really long game. And I I remember being in the thick of it at first, and I was like, okay, nothing is going on, but like the you know having that knowledge of what does happen rereading this i'm like oh wow he really did foreshadow and set up a lot of stuff that we are 20 issues in by the end of this arc nearly so like most marvel books nowadays don't make it to 20 but at almost 20 issues you know he's still really setting up things for his run this series so often feels to me like a machine a factory that is processing a lot of marvel ideas and concepts and characters and trying to make them into a digestible form for readers that we can carry into the future and have a lot for other writers to work with going forward in a world where comics fandom and readership is really changing. And this whole thing becomes a platform for not just exploration of characters and ideas, but for readers to become fans and become part of fandom and learn about deep lore stuff. It's not feasible to do all that and do really great tight story the way you come to expect in a solid book that you know lately we we see those good tight stories in runs that typically do not go 20 issues they typically go somewhere closer to 12 so knowing what we know about this it's pretty easy for me to accept the project for what it is and really enjoy that but you're absolutely right the story does not always do what you would want it to do in 
other books that we kind of know are more limited and really have to push the story forward every issue. I'm so much more comfortable with this one not doing it as I'm reading solicits for issue 57. They've got time. Marvel kind of was like, Jason Aaron, we're going to let you have the fun, bombastic book that is a launch point for just so many other things. Because thinking of it like, what, Eternals sprung from the arc we read already. We've got Moon Knight springing from later on the Age of Kanchu. So many other books that have sprung from this title, this idea, the big crossover, Heroes Reborn. So like Marvel was like, cool, let's use this as a springboard to just do whatever you want. You know what? Balls to the wall. Go have fun. Yeah. It does maybe sometimes not escape my notice that Balls to the Wall involves some of the same beats. Like I said, I am a little overwhelmed by the number of multiple antagonistic teams all coming for each other at once, usually against the Avengers. If something else kind of doesn't escape my notice, it's that they're always afraid that one of them is about to go evil any second. However, all of it's worth it for the cover of number 16, Blade, Buddy, that bold shot, bro. I am here for it. Although I, I do have to say my favorite cover is 15, which is the humor in that. Oh, absolutely. I love if you don't buy this book, we'll kill this <laughs> Avenger. That is so classic 70s Marvel. Yes, but that is a nice bullshot. Oh, it's so nice. Good job, Blade. Robbie and Hell being uh, meditative and it ultimately being that Johnny Blaze is sort of counseling him, sort of pushing him. I love the amount of work that Jason Aaron does in developing Robbie into as full a character as he can. And yet I don't feel like we lose that with the introduction of Blade because they're immediately put together. How do you guys feel about the continued development of Robbie Reyes? He really does get an awful lot of page time, even as a big Robbie fan. I love it. I love it. You can tell that Jason Aaron really loves the character of Robbie Reyes and has a lot of respect for him in a way where some writers would have brought in Johnny Blaze and, you know, just had him, you know, take over and be Ghostwriter again. But, you know, thankfully that didn't happen here. And, and hopefully Robbie Reyes still gets to continue to be Ghostwriter for 50 years from now because he's such an important character and it's cool to see legacy characters interact with their predecessors, but also not have the predecessor be like, see kid, that's why I'm the original. He really does establish a kind of new tier of experience for characters. He's not a teen. He's not yet an adult, not a girl, not yet a woman. He is somebody who needs somebody like Carol's guidance and support and belief in him, but he's also a force to be reckoned with and he can be a huge advantage to the team when he can ride a celestial and fight it into battle and they need something like that, but he's also a liability, not just because he's new and not necessarily always great with his abilities, but because there is a lot of mystery and not as much understanding about how his powers work, where they come from, what else is going on. We're seeing something more contained, but similar with She-Hulk's evolution of her powers. Very good to have a heavy hitter on there, but as we see in this arc, there are consequences that are sort of still not understood and are unexpected. I know how that plays out in World War She-Hulks, and I guess I kind of do with Robbie too, because I've read the King of Hell stuff. But it's a cool thing to see that this is not just like iconic Avengers who are always at the top of their game unless they fight somebody really difficult and then they got to get it all together. Like sometimes they maybe should be able to win a fight handily, but Robbie had a problem and now it's a whole other thing. Speaking of Jin and Robbie together, that fireball special... (laughs) 
was to yeah. die for. Yeah, oh. top, top moment. One of my top moments. The other moment that made my, like, I don't really say this much, but uh, yes, ma'am. When Carol says, whoever said I was mortal, and she <sighs> fucking takes a penance stare to the <sighs> face. Yes. That is like, that is Carol getting hit in the face by Thanos good. That is, that is so good. It, it, she's so good even space got carol like jason aaron's writing her in a way where i'm like oh you know i don't hate her like he does her so well in that role that it's really hard to hate her even though i want to you know and speaking of that thing where we said cap might not always represent exactly what he is culturally in each book but cap holding robbie on the ground is so great and then blade comforting robbie so excellent the thing that threw me off is that being juxtaposed with us supposed to feel bad for Dracula? Like, I don't care that Dracula is having people that he also tortures people with tortured. That's a bunch of murderers. I don't care. And so, like, seeing some of that juxtaposition of the emotional apex of Robbie's story, I think that might have been a bit of clever editing work to put us in an emotional state to make us feel something for Dracula, but the answer's no. Well, the answer's no for you. It's no for me, too. But I could absolutely see how, again, if you're a new reader to Marvel and you don't know Marvel Dracula especially, but you just haven't necessarily seen as many of these beats. The intensity with which Dracula comes to his conviction of, I really just want out, it is, it's plausible to me that that's plausible to somebody. I don't buy it, of course, because I've been here a while and I've seen it, and I'm okay with the fact that I didn't buy it, but I could definitely see how, especially for like a kid, you know, I, I just think of somebody who loved the Avengers movies and started reading the comics and they're like somewhere between 8 and 12 years old. This might be a moment where they were like, oh, I really thought, and I got totally spun on my head. The scene where the Red Widow kills all the vampires uh, as Dracula watches, it was confusing to me because I didn't know what I was supposed to feel because I I think the story did want you to feel bad for him or to think you were going to feel bad for him, even though he's like, I'm giving you what you want. Don't kill my people. I could not get, what is his motivation for that? Like, is he sad because his power is gone? Like the people that he's turned to vampires, or is he sad because he cared about these people? That was the one part I was like, huh? But can we just stop for a moment and praise pansexual icon Dracula and his sea of concubines of all yes. genders? That was nice. That was really good to see. The representation we needed. Well, and like, I love a smart, evil queer. I'll admit it. I don't love Dracula or anything, <laughs> but I love like a smart, sassy, evil queer. And he's like, number one, kill all my concubines. That's fine. Wow. Number two, I'm going to eat this bird. Number three, they put me in their own giant coffin. Oops. And I just think, like, everything about the plan was really smart. Like, I love that he... Because that's something that, you know, to harken back a little bit, something that, Nathan, you and Steve talked about in your coverage, Dracula kind of tries to be sexy, but it's in this creepy old soap opera man way, and it doesn't always work. The parts that work for me here are Dracula is a conniving mastermind. The parts that don't work for me are Dracula is a 
creature I should have feelings for. So that altogether, this was secretly a Dracula plan might not hit with originality, but it is a conclusive, complete idea I expected. There were no surprises when I realized the part where they're like, they put me in a coffin. And I was like, of course, like there was no like you pulled one over my eyes. I was waiting for that moment to drop and like a little formulaic, but it sets up a fun regime with, uh, you know, the Chernobyl vampires. So like, I'm good for it. But it's really hard to personalize Dracula and make him somebody that you can be sympathetic for. Like I can always find in, you know, just normal rank and file vampires. I can find some tragedy that I, I really can feel compelled to really like that character. Reese and Moon Knight right now. Reese is such an amazing character, uh, you know, vampire to her core now and still fighting against that programming. But Dracula, it's it's hard, right? Because yes, vampires are sexy. Dracula oftentimes comes across as a corny soap opera actor in the Marvel Universe. But beyond the sexy factor, like, is there anything that really justifies a love for Dracula himself versus like just vampires in general? Yeah, I don't uh, buy Marvel Dracula as a villain that I'm ever going to be putting on the level of Kang or Doom. But I buy Chernobyl Vampire Homeland as a concept that I could get really into with the right writer on it and depending on what the story is. So it, it speaks to that thing that I've been saying, which is just that I'm here for the concepts that get established, not so much always the individual character work. To me, at this point, the individual character work is kind of more like a treat. Like this seems such a big, crazy project to me that I've just, I really early on stopped expecting it. And I'm okay with that. It's not like I'm compromising. This just isn't that book and I'm loving this book for what it is. So at the end of an arc, if I don't feel any more drawn to Dracula, but now I'm thinking like, what's going on with the Chernobyl vampires? I'm totally okay with that. We also get so many active things to think about. Like, I don't know that I saw She-Hulk really get ready to explode. I feel like I just saw She-Hulk explode. I saw T'Challa say that he's trying to heal everybody, but I don't really get to see it. I get that amazing shot of Thori being incredible, but I don't know that I really get why Boy Thing so immediately trusts Blade. It's not that there's things that don't work for me. It's that I always feel like with so many characters in this book, I could stand for another 10 pages an issue. Yeah, you had the Shadow Colonel's group, you had the Avengers, you had a big focus on Blade and Robbie Reyes, but like, did She-Hulk blowing up in a gamma atom bomb need to really be in this where we couldn't give it much of a buildup? Did we really need all of the Winter Guard characters as much as I always love seeing Dark Star? Like, did we really need that? Like, the Red Widow's part could have just been by herself. This was a, I think, a five-issue arc. Like, you would have had points and times for all of the individual issues brought up, and I don't think it was given enough time to ruminate some of the plot points. Yeah, it wasn't. Jen is a great example. I don't understand what triggered that. I don't understand where everybody was in proximity to it such that they're all fine. That, to me, is not the best thing to read. The point of it is clearly that this is a problem, and we are going to have to reckon with it in the future, and of course that does pay off. So, you definitely can't, you could never argue with me that like, and man, they got every plot beat right, they they took care of every single thing that they introduced. Some stuff is just kind of thrown into the salad and you do with it what you will, but they do seem willing to reckon with what they're putting out there in some capacity. I find myself more invested in this book every time I read it. There's so many threads and Jason Aaron winds up responsible for what feels like an at 
atlas amount of carrying the Marvel Universe on his back in a single title. I certainly don't believe Jason Aaron is the only writer at Marvel doing anything, and he is the only one moving the universe forward. That's not what I mean, but he is the only person who is somehow expected to find room for 673 characters a month (laughs) who are all in other books. And I find myself enamored of the title, impressed with Jason Aaron, and respectful of the era it's crafting. I do respect that he's really looking to take chances with some of these ideas that we thought were pretty solidly set. Every time that he touches the Phoenix and I'm like, that's not how I would have envisioned it. I respect the fact that he's like, cool, I'm going to take this idea and make it something that you didn't think it was before. The same with same with the Celestials, same with same with vampires. Like he made vampires cool again, where they were kind of a joke for the longest time in the Marvel Universe. So like I, I respect that vision of revisiting things and, you know, changing them a little bit, changing how you fundamentally understand. And this type of book is something that I have been craving from the X line. I think maybe it was sort of what the intention of Hickman's X-Men was, but it never reached this level. I, for every, like, flaw of maybe this isn't the best writing in Avengers, it's just so much stuff. And sometimes I want so much stuff, especially when I know that the other books in the line are doing a great job of covering smaller character moments, smaller teams. With this Avengers run, we know a lot of these characters, if not at the same time, then in the future, the current present same time, are getting those books. I mean, technically it's Johnny Blaze, but like there's a Ghost Rider book, there's a She-Hulk book. We are getting individual looks at characters or like parts of this team that are allowing us to explore more in depth. And this book is just giving us reckoning with all the stuff that is part of the Avengers world. And I love that. I'm having fun with that. It's something sometimes I want to see in the lines that have a lot of characters because I want everybody to get a chance and I want everybody to get a reference. And I like when writers remind us that they haven't forgotten about this piece of lore that I felt was important back in the day, but has not been brought up again. So regardless of anything else, this book just kind of works for me, always being what it is and never trying to be anything else. When you think of the X line, there's the main book that'll like push it forward, but there's a lot of books and they all interconnect back to each other. So like, I think Aaron's Avenger book would really benefit from like an Avengers office, right? That had cool, we are going to do this, 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 and this with it. And we're going to make sure it all kind of ties in in the books. So you can see what happened in this book is important and affected this book. And this is how it did it. And then it can come back to the main line or the main book that it got started in and still be consistent. So I think if, if Aaron had like a Avengers office, I think that would really help this book out and really cohesively put together all the parts that he sort of sent out into the universe. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcasts for modern Marvels, chronoskimming classics, and Fists of the Beast. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me opposing the hand over on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, where I'm standing daredevil in a bathtub. And I'm TK. You can find me looking for and helping to lift up Lovemonger on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at peakjonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience. Unlike the many people that died throughout this book. And you can also hear Frank Castle not scream, Where's my family?
listen, my only experience with Frank Castle before this in any actual form was Savage Avengers, and the only thing he ever said in that first issue was, where's my family? Yeah, I mean, that's his catchphrase. You know, everybody's got that thing. Wolverine's the best at what he does. Tyler Florence wants to get rolling. And when Frank likes to shoot him up, he likes to say, where's my family? It gets you off. It's what you do. And that, of course, means we're here to talk about Punisher War Journal Blitz, which represents a unique entry into Jason Aaron's Punisher series. Now, this title is brought to us by Torin Grunbeck with art by Lan Medina, colors by Antonio Fabella, and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. And the issue itself slots into the current Punisher run as sort of a one-shot that explores kind of the wanton violence that the Punisher book itself doesn't really need to economize panel space for. So, you know, TK, you and I have been covering this book with kind of literal bated breath. This has been one of the most fascinating reads of our last few years, and I'd love to know where you stood entering Pun War Gerblet. We did some coverage on issue three of Punisher where I think we tried to do our best to acknowledge the trouble, and we've done this throughout, but we really took some time to acknowledge the troubling relationship between the Punisher and the real-life police who worship the symbol of the Punisher and see themselves in the story of the Punisher in ways that are scary and problematic. And this run has been met with some criticism that maybe we should just retire the Punisher and Frank Castle entirely. It's just an ugly thing and there's no way to redeem it. I usually am somebody that falls into that category of thinking like when something has gotten that bad, just get rid of it. I read this because I was interested to see if there was anything redeeming and I was blown away by how redeeming it is of not the Punisher or the Punisher symbol but of the idea that yes Frank Castle is not a good guy and if you worship Frank Castle and the Punisher symbol you're probably not a good guy it is done in a really sophisticated way with beautiful art beautiful storytelling a really interesting story that tying into the grander Marvel universe in a way that's really important there is never going to be enough time for some people to spend on reinforcing the idea that Frank Castle is not a good person and that the complex relationship between racism, systemic violence, the military industrial complex that comes from the Punisher symbol and its worship by police, it is always worth taking more page time to explore. And War Journal Blitz, this first issue, really feels like a necessary stop to get into the complexity of the fictional and real world interaction of the Punisher symbol and the hatred that exists in parts of this country. I'm in the same boat as you, TK. Man, the nature of problematic faves is so tricky because I read these books very much thinking Frank is equally a villain. I don't read this because I'm like, yeah, Frank, get the bad guy. I'm like, this is scum watching scum kill scum. And I read it from an artistic perspective about the storytelling when I'm looking for a hero. I look to heroes. I look to, you know, Kamala Khan for strength. Like, that's where I go. But when I'm, or, you know, Captain America, you know, Thor, like, you know, people who are meant to represent heroic ideals that live a life by a code that keeps them in line such that when their character is naturally tested by the virtue of living, they have a boundary and they have a compass. Punisher has none of those things. Punisher is the absence of soul wrapped up in hyperviolent immolation. And I read Punisher on a technical level. Like, I read it because this style of comic is something I grew up on, war comics, revenge comics, crime comics, and it's a form of media I appreciate. It's not that I ever, ever want to see the Punisher succeed or root for him or identify with him. 
I think Frank Castle is horrible and that this run does not seek to hide that is one of the most important things for me as a fan who wishes to see this character remain publishable in any regard and not necessarily a fan of Punisher, but a fan of the Marvel Universe in which the Punisher plays an integral part. You know, Jonah, you are new to punishing and I like that there are these one shots, you know, this one, of course, being Pun Warble and you've missed the first three issues, but this this first page says the cult of assassins known as the hand made Frank Castle an offer he couldn't refuse, become their high slayer in exchange for the resurrection of his long dead wife Maria. Frank is just one in a long line of fabled fists of the beast. Frank now uses the hand's resources to battle criminals, warmongers, and violent offenders across the globe. It's everything you need to know except the fact that there's a 700 year old woman who is trying to get his dick. Now that you have that, how do you feel coming into this run of Punisher? There are certain people that idolize the Punisher, but don't don't realize that the Punisher is actually against them. A lot of where Frank Castle got his start in terms of vigilanteism, whatever antiheroism, whatever you want to call him, because I, I think he's a little too multifaceted to define by one character archetype, is cops not doing their job properly and him kind of beating up bad cops. And they're like, wait, but we're the good guys. And he's like, no, you're not. It's kind of like Dexter, where Dexter was a serial killer who killed other serial killers. But you don't think Dexter is an actual good person or a good guy. So maybe I, I am doing a little bit of a oversimplification of why I don't think you're meant to, you know, look at Frank Castle and be like, I want to be like that guy. But I don't see any of Frank's actions as something of like, yeah, I really agree with what he's doing here. I, I'm going to be like him. I just don't think it makes sense in my mind. Frank Castle is basically in th- essentially what is the ultimate fashion bargain, where he's basically told, we will give you what you want of your dead wife coming back to life, but you got to be, you know, our right hand guy for the beast and you got to kind of do all this killing. You got to do all this slayer stuff. And he's like, fine. And I don't know if in the end this will actually work out for him. And that's kind of the whole point of a fashion bargain. You're making a bargain where what you're getting out of it isn't equitable to what you're giving. And seeing kind of Frank say, okay, I'll be your slayer, but... And then kind of doing all this work against seedy underbelly people who are bad and evil and using evil resources to combat evil. I find it fascinating that he's kind of like, I'm going to do what I want and you're just all going to have to listen to me. And they're all like, yes, Frank, we're all going to listen to you. And that's just how it is. It's very similar in the sense of what Shang-Chi is doing, but we understand that Shang-Chi is lawful good. He's the goodest of boys. Whereas Frank, I don't know where Frank aligns in alignment. He's kind of a shitmouth bitch. The thing that keeps Frank human is his respect for certain people, but it's a matter of he says he has respect for Captain America and that Captain America is a man who helps him determine the kind of man he wants to be. But then he lives a life outside of that. He lives a life far removed from that notion and it's such a tricky element to the Punisher's narrative because he is a character where we have been told in fact that he is a good guy but by deed language and all knowledge of him he is a bad bad man and I think finally getting a chance to think of him as a little shit mouth bitch is really going to help us explore what makes a Frank story. I am not saying I'm here for villains culture, but if you wanted to continue punishing people with Punisher titles, you should consider publishing them as bad guy books. 
Yeah, I think one of the big mistakes people who say that the Punisher should just be gotten rid of entirely and there's no way that somebody isn't going to read the wrong message into this. Usually the argument is something along the lines of superhero comics aren't meant for this type of thing. And the medium is comics. There is no one template. You can tell an amazing comic book story that is a cautionary tale about someone who you should never emulate. And if a person is not old enough or sophisticated enough to understand that not every single person that stars in a comic book is a superhero, that is a very important making sure your child is well-educated, making sure that people have sufficient media literacy. But I don't think it's reasonable to suggest that there is no way to use the medium of comic books to tell a story about, and especially to reclaim a character that has often been vaulted as a hero and to use the medium that did it and references to stories that did it to say absolutely no he is not he exists in this universe but that doesn't make him a good person that doesn't make him someone you should emulate and in fact here's all the ways that that's going wrong it's so valuable to recognize that the complex narrative at stake here is part of a bigger sense of moral responsibility in comics to depict situations with clarity I believe that one of the mistakes we have long held that more than Marvel DC has sought to rectify over the years. Books used to really only have good guys' names on them. Of course, there's a couple of examples of outliers that are different and short-lived titles, but for the most part, at Marvel, when they do a villain with their own title, it's because the villain has replaced the hero, and on some level, now the villain is grappling with this. No, some people are bad people. But because Marvel doesn't publish bad guy titles where the bad guy isn't in some way being converted good in little itty-bitty increments a la a superior title, they kind of shy away. So if Marvel can go out of their way to say, pun wardrobe as well as, of course, Punisher itself, and even the excellent represent bad guys on all sides, then I think we could really work toward a place where these titles have a place on the shelf without reservation. But as it stands, there's times I feel guilty enjoying talking about these. Now that he is the fists of the beast, one of the things that that means is he is in direct opposition with my precious Matthew. Now, of course, he and Matthew have never particularly gotten along. He and Elektra don't get along unless fucking. But analyzing the fact that he is being pit against Daredevil, who is such a goody two-shoes, a number of writers that love to write the Punisher that truly hate Daredevil. He is this moral goody-goody priesty boy. The Punisher is literally a demon now. And he wears a demon on his shirt. And he is literally punching things to death to make a demon's belly full. Like, there is no other way to look at this. The Punisher is a murder boy. It is so stupid good. And this is the first time we get to see him in action. All of the issues so far in this run have been Punisher in a little cave, being trained by the hand, being broken, psychologically reprogrammed, shattered into being their perfect little soldier boy, then we have Punisher finally out in the real world. We have the first truly bloody issue of Punisher in this run that isn't in some sort of he's just killing members of the hand kind of way. And first of all, Marvel took the fuck yes balls to have it written by a woman who has already proven herself on gritty titles. She has already shown she knows how to tussle. So Torin Grunbuch's work here is a welcome refresh on Jason Aaron's work. They've already worked together a number of 
of time. So it's just really exciting to see that partnership continue to grow. The special thanks to Jason Aaron on page one really was a nice touch. But man, I love seeing Punisher uh, really be treated as like an agent of the hand. They're not pulling back on this daring idea. I am always of the mindset, show, don't tell, number one. Number two, don't spoon feed your audience. Let your audience be able to come to their own conclusions on things from what you're telling them. It's very important that creators of any artistic medium be able to give their audience a little bit of trust and faith to understand what their art is trying to say and what the repercussions and ramifications of those mean. I'd rather the story show Frank doing a lot more morally dubious and questionable things into where exactly he stands. Does he know what he's doing is bad? Does he think there's a better way? Does he think this is the only way to get to the end? Is he an end justifies the mean kind of guy where it doesn't matter to him the inferno that he sets as long as he gets what he wants in the end? And if that just happens to be the inferno is burning down a bunch of bad people, does that still make him a good person? You know, it's a lot of morality that you can kind of argue. And I think Frank would be a very fascinating case study to talk about superheroism in general. But I rather the book continue the way it does and Marvel can just kind of say what they want because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what somebody says if the meat and potatoes of what you're actually serving somebody is very different you can't say somebody and here's your first entree of a soup and then hand them a salad i enjoy the writing more trying to be a lot more diverse and trying to tell the story as opposed to someone quickly behind like trying to brush the steps taken there be like no no he's good i swear while all the while like trying to clean up the damage done behind it by just saying things the main punisher story aaron's punisher is pretty clear right from the get-go that Frank is leading a bad team. These are not heroes. There is no, we're going to make the world better. Frank is still on his, I want to take out bad guys thing. And I guess you're supposed to be like, well, that technically makes the world better. But that really feels like such a sliver of a point compared to like, you're working with the hand. There's a little literal demon that you have to go tell your sins to. An old lady keeps trying to fuck you and also make you murder people. You murder people for no reason. Your wife is going insane like nothing about anything that happens in the three issues of punisher that have been out so far makes you think like i don't know i think he's gonna pull this off and save the world it just is like bad situation at best this dude is in over his head and at worst yeah he made a faustian bargain and he's not a good person this takes us into a situation where frank is now marshalling all of his resources and doing a mission for frank he always says that his mission is to kill criminals that is ostensibly what they are going to do when they arrive to the criminals and go to kill them the criminals that they're killing look a lot like the people who tend to adopt the punisher logo and talk about what a hero he is and how they wish they could do what he does which is to kill bad guys because they're the good guys and you should kill bad guys at any cost to protect the world because you're allowed to do that because you have the freedom to use guns if anybody trespasses on your territory you can do that frank comes in and those are the people that he's killing so now we're in this insane situation of really not liking white men on police forces who adopt violence and the Punisher logo to build their personalities and Frank being the one who's saying they're bad guys. So are we rooting for Frank? Who are we rooting for here? It's all bad. None of this is good. And that is exactly what we needed to see to level out the mystical, weird, slithery, demonic goodness that we're getting in the main Punisher book. Because it's 
clear as it is that Frank is bad, we've got to deal with kind of the hard, ugly facts about all of this and how it exists in the world. One of the things that this story seeks to do is to make sure that we understand that the applications that Frank is employing are still the applications he employed when he was Punisher proper. This isn't something where we've never seen Punisher with binoculars and we've never seen Punisher with a tactile thing and we've never seen Punisher use guerrilla warfare. Like by contrasting it with the past, we're immediately made clear Punisher actually hasn't changed his tactics very much. This is still the same kind of man. One of the things that fascinates me is the self-delusion that he is engaging with and the way the self-delusion is reflective of the argument you just presented. He kind of believes that he's doing whatever it takes to save the world. He just thinks he's killing for a demon, is okay because he gets back his wife. and Yeah, that's just a machine that he uses to save the world. It's an ends justifies the means thing. You can, yeah. you can dox somebody and you can use profiling and you can use excessive force because you know what? Most of the time it's sometimes, you know, it's been on a bad guy. So it's okay. And it's that moral certainism that these characters possess that is reflected in the necessary moral uncertainty that these situations require. The black and white nature of Frank's suit reflects the black and white nature of his understanding of the world. It is so important that we not forget that Frank really is also doing this because he loves violence and something that's employed in Punisher 1 through 3 by Jason Aaron and a bevy of incredible artists is that Frank was an awful little kid. Frank just loves violence. This is what Frank is genuinely good at. He's not so good at so much else, but Frank sure does know how to hurt people. Now, I do want to ask a bit about the nature of Frank taking out hate monger and white supremacists as it relates to Punisher. Something that we've discussed at length on this show is there's very little we would love to see more than the end of the good guyification of Nazis. There really is no benefit to using a Nazi in a Marvel comic or working with a Nazi. I don't care if that Von Strucker has been around since the 1940s. We can retire a carrot, right? So seeing hate monger, an actual representation of white supremacy, does really lead to a question. How can you, from this issue forward, and I mean, also we saw this in Mark Wade's Daredevil. We've seen this a number of places. But how can we, once we've made clear parallels between hate groups and the sort of humanization of bad people, like Dr. Nemesis is a complicated character for that reason. How do you guys feel that hate groups and the, the rightfully simplistic interpretation of their ideologies fits into the sometimes falsely complex ideology presentation of characters who walk that line? What I'm constantly vigilant about is, did a writer get a little too precious about characters and writing and the idea of sympathy just broadly as I need to be able to identify with this character to follow them at all? Did that like just general writerly instinct to make it somebody that you could watch even die and be punished because they're actually really a villain tie into maybe humanizing someone that doesn't deserve to be humanized? I was so impressed with Torin Grunbeck here. There 
are no good guys here. I don't think at any point you actually say to yourself, well, is maybe Punisher actually a good guy because what he did was destroy a white supremacist compound? But it is good that there are fewer white supremacists. That the complexity of the fact that it is good that there are fewer white supremacists mixed with the fact that absolutely nothing good happened in this issue is a reflection of reality that we all need to deal with. There is a problem to which there might not be a good solution at all. And the reckoning that we all need to have with what we are willing to tolerate in order to see a world that we believe is just and right, that is an ongoing conversation. That is a conversation with no simple answers. And there is still a way for it to be a complicated conversation without ever letting monsters and racists and hate mongers be sympathetic. That applies to Frank just as much as it applies to hate monger. And despite the fact that there is conflict here, it is not a battle between good and evil. It's not even a battle between slightly sympathetic and not sympathetic at all. It's just chaos and it's dark and it's horrible. And it's what we can take from the future of Punisher that isn't, oh, he's like kind of actually a good guy. It's like, no, it's just chaos all around. It's just violence for violence's sake. I think when you're using people who represent hate group ideologies and who, and, you know, these fictional characters that believe it, I think it's up to the writer to make sure there's a clear delineation of whether there might be a crossover in how somebody acts, making sure that line is drawn of where they specifically stand versus that specific hate group ideology. It's a very tricky line that you have to walk with your characters that are morally dubious so you don't create characters and you you don't have them accidentally supporting ideologies that you yourself as a writer don't support, or you don't want these characters supporting. And I think it's a very tricky line that kind of like a tightrope back. And you do have to make sure you're balancing what your art is saying and what your characters are doing so your readers can understand where the difference lies. Because part of what makes this issue really interesting is, and you know, again, Jonah, it's so interesting that you lack the context from the first three issues, but they're clearly cult reprogramming Frank. They have him locked in a compound all day every day either locked in a room or training or killing or bathing in blood he's always doing something that is reshaping his experience and worldview and it's obviously programming and we see him take his programming out into the real world where he has to also rely on who he used to be but there's no point at which Torin Grunbeck has us follow Frank into a, a moment of quiet reflection where Lan Medina channels a thoughtful Frank who thinks to himself Maybe, maybe a big demon isn't the same thing as the the military industrial compound. Well, it is, but maybe it's a different kind of the same or different. You know, we don't get that reflective point. We just get Frank continues to be a soldier. One of the things that was promised to Frank, or at least implied from my understanding, was Frank could get his children back the way he got his wife back, perhaps if he kills enough people. So it makes me believe that Frank is operating under a motivation that he's not really talking about here. So readers of this issue are going to see this and see the key elements of action, the key elements of what makes Punisher Punisher on a technical level for the book, but by removing the sort of 10,000-year-old magic demon stuff, you're able to make the issue really accessible to people who read the title not because of the problematic icky go-to-hell stuff, but read it for other reasons. So now they're going to read this new issue by a crack creative team who does an expert job creating 
two different looks for past and present, mostly relying on the color. Nothing against the line art, which is truly beautiful, but the color does a lot of the work carrying the transition between flashback and present. And when they say, you know what? This was a cool one shot. I I know Punisher War Journal is the name of a series. I'm going to go pick up Punisher 1 through 3. I think this really is an example of what Marvel's always trying to do. They're trying to create a single issue that works in or out of context. Now, I love that there's three of us and that, Jonah, you don't have the context and TK, you do. For me, I think this sets up a point of there is a functional way in which this highlights the theatrical elements while leaves the mystery to be unfolded in the page of the numbered series. I don't know if I know enough about the genuine characterization of who Punisher is as a baseline to fully comprehend if this is a really good modernization of him. However, I did enjoy this issue because for people who are new readers to Frank Castle and who may just be reading starting from Jason Aaron's run, I think this actually does give a decent idea of who exactly Frank is. This issue really reminded me, it's an X-Men classic issue where Wolverine is like stalking a bear. It's like a Wolverine think piece. That is an oxymoron, a Wolverine think piece. We're seeing this stream of conscious of Frank and how he's dealing with the problem at hand and how he's handling the obstacle set forth of hate monger and what that means for him as a character. I will talk about the modernization of a character and how do you bring a character that's been established for so long and how do you bring him into the modern comic lens without relying on things that maybe were problematic or bad about a character that were acceptable in a previous time versus what we now know may not be as acceptable. Ultimately, I do think this issue, without reading anything else does give a better context into who Frank Castle is currently right now, this morally dubious character, working with the assumption of the ends are going to justify the means. Him getting his wife back uh, doesn't, the price doesn't matter to him because that goal is so important to him he doesn't care about the rampage and the path he takes to get there. Whether there was a proper, stereotypical tropey good guy version, that path didn't interest him in this moment. He was presented an opportunity and he saw that opportunity as something he wanted to take. For me, one of the things that I'm most interested in now that we have three issues of Punisher, one issue of War Journal, and we are anticipating a cycle like this, the format of that and what it allows you to do for story and character development is something that really interests me. You guys have really touched on all of the reasons why, because again, we're looking at a character that Marvel's not going to let go of any IP and especially not recognizable ones, but I don't know that there was any way to continue with Punisher. Punisher really could have been the one that you would say, while we will not ever let truly let go, like we may have to really pack this one in the back and not touch it. This attempt is going well in part because there is a solid comic book story that features elements that are, features storytelling elements that we might expect or want to see or find enjoyable. We've now balanced it out with this really practical boots on the ground morally complex and unpleasant to reckon with satellite issue that informs the larger story that can stand on its own and unfortunately with so many heroes with complex but really iconographic backstories taking the time to do three issues and a a side issue every quarter might be you know an example of the work that you have 
have to put in to really plausibly move the dial forward on recontextualizing a character and giving audiences the content and tools to, within themselves, within fandom, talk and work together to come to an understanding of why it is not just okay, but maybe even sometimes important that a character that started out being horrible and that we never should have had in the first place became so recognizable that we can't get rid of him and now we need to make him into something that the horribleness is a feature that is built in and that's what we talk about. How will we never become like Frank Castle? How will we never let our children become like Frank Castle? How will we never say that it is acceptable for a group of people ostensibly who protect others to use the Punisher symbol? This story overall, these two books can do a lot to give people important ways to have those discussions. It's just a bigger production than is usually dedicated to most comic book characters. Part of the discussion that has to go into a title like Punisher, it can't just be the surface text we'll read anymore, in part because we've entered an age where the comics themselves have become more complicated and nuanced than that. Because the stories themselves are accountable, the conversation also then needs to be held accountable in the same regard. So I'm really excited and glad that we've taken the time to address a lot of the bigger picture story here. But I did want to take a moment to talk about the art. One of the things that the art really provides is a classic feel of a Punisher book while still giving us a sort of, I don't know, unique, new, younger Frank. I think the Frank that we see over in the pages of Numbered Punisher is a lot like the cover for Four, where he's got that, I am thick like a meatball kind of face. Like, you know, he looks genuinely, he looks like sexy meatloaf. And I mean the food, not the performer a day. So I am very into this kind of like, hey guys, I'm wide kind of look that they're giving him. And we need something that we can recognize as Punisher when not in such a uniquely stylized form of art. And I think the title here really captured it. It youthens his face, but I do believe that is part of what's going on in the book overall for a number of years. Everybody got a little max happy and, you know, it was all very Punisher aged in real time, like he's some kind of John Constantine looking for his fucking trench coat. But it's really a nice touch. Overall, I thought the art was terrific. I've already paid love to the colors for doing so much work creating a stark difference between the flashbacks and the modern time. It was really great comic book art. This had a lot of work to do in terms of battle choreography and telling the story of a violent conflict. I think it absolutely nailed that. It was one of those issues where despite how chaotic everything is, you're never confused as to who is where and what's going on. There are real moments of, you know, intentional symbology where I'm looking at digital page seven, where Frank slams one of the white supremacists against like a background flag and he slumps down in the next panel. And in the next panel, the flag has fallen around this white supremacist like kind of a shawl. And he's got this like very like woman broken in the streets with her with her cowl over her head look on her. And it just like it kind of comes out of nowhere because it's this moment of real softness for a person that and again, there's no sympathy here. This is not like, oh, look at this poor dude. It's just like this person has been laid low and is covered now. Taking the time to put in elements like this reinforces just how Frank's violence doesn't do anything to humanize the people that it's against. It is just the ugliness of war. I also really do love 
of how just handsome he looks. Because again, I think good guy as handsome, we've really graduated past that. We don't have to have every bad guy look ugly. We are actually at a point where sometimes you really can tell who the bad guy is because he's so beautiful. And I think here, having Frank have this kind of all-American man, very handsome cut jawline thing, somehow it does to me really read as even more evil that he can be so well-kept and clean in a situation like this and look so handsome just makes him all the sort of more disgusting to me. Yes, completely. I feel very much the same way. There is a certain kind of beautiful that we sort of associate with evil. It's that very blonde, blue-eyed, smarmy, charming. And like, we don't think of a guy that looks like, like he could be your neighborhood Dilf as, "Mm, this guy's got a serial killing fetish. But like, no, here we are. There is something that is a betrayal of the conceptual identity that we visually tend to project onto these characters. And I do like that they kind of went against that. Jonah, I have a question. You've read the one shot. You've read the special. Are you going to go back and read Punishers 1 through 3? Do you see yourself reading Punisher 4? Or are you going to keep a lookout for Punisher War Journal Brother number 1 on sale in October? For me personally, no. Punisher's just not really a character I cared very much about about. However, I would read another war journal like this and I will be keeping my eye out in October. Interesting. Okay. My comics consumption, I'm going to really stick to characters despite how amazing these stories might be written. I tend to stick to characters that I either know I already like or characters that I have a specific interest in that I would really like to get into reading more about. Punisher, unfortunately, doesn't fall into either of those categories. Now, if they did something completely radical and really weird and wacky with him, sure, I might read it and I might find it fascinating. But it's not something I think I would be going out of my way to read. However, these snippet one-shots I actually think are very fascinating into the insight of Frank Castle that I find much more fascinating than an actual traditional run that I think he could get. I'd be so excited to do this again with Brother then because I'm interested to see if a second one gives you a comparable level for what you've read of information about what's gone on in the past three months as doing all three of the Aaron run will have done for us or if it will just be these like three or four individualized stories that you read every three months that just kind of give you a little update about where he is now. Well, then I think that's how we've got to do it because as soon as Jonah said he couldn't wait, you know, he would be looking out for brother. I was immediately like, I can't wait to do this. Oh my gosh, this is, this is the thing. We're going to have to take a look at this in that perspective. And I can't wait to return to talk about both that issue and Punisher with you, TK. (laughs) 